0: 15. Love my neighbor? In my tunnel vision of life, for some strange reason, I choose to learn by my own mistakes. Rather than learn from what others have taught and told to me, I prefer to get tossed around and beaten up before coming to see the light. But in that path I have much company, as today there is an idea of finding your own truth, which is kind of funny, as if there were 7 or 8 billion versions of truth in the world. In essence, finding your own truth implies that there is no truth, and what that really means is that there is no God, there is no first cause of the universe, and that we are just the unhappy results of chemistry and physics. I do not accept that since at the bottom of that is nihilism and meaninglessness. I do, however, think it is extremely important to let people find that out, as I needed to do. Despite ample opportunity, To follow the path back to the heart, I became stuck and lost in so many oxygen-starved capillaries of the world. As for getting lost in the worldly things, I should be grateful for it, to be honest. My life suffered no major hardships to correct me back to awareness of my powerlessness other than my arrest. I was under the impression that I had control, which allowed me to pursue paths of learning and ideas that elevated the self. I know others who came to faith much earlier, some who came to see after a tragic event. Others apparently just have the gift to believe and stick to it from a young age, which is the key, really, as Jesus says, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What's funny is that people that take the long route like me end up coming back like a child or, in my case, more aptly, like a prodigal. Of course, as a returned prodigal, that means I have committed many, many sins for which I need forgiveness. In my two-decade absence from the church, I made a laundry list of mortal sins or grave matters, and I needed absolution of those to get myself righted and fully oriented toward God. To me, my weaknesses and frailties of the past give me insight into the golden rule the most important commandment because of my flaws i understand others flaws but it depends on the flaw you see i seem to have accepted my flaws as valid and i judge certain other flaws as greater or worse so yes i have a snobbery about specific flaws it seems which jesus didn't mention anything about so As to that golden rule, the greatest commandment, I like to imagine that I'm capable of living true to it, but I'm not. This one paragraph rules over the rest of the Bible. And I forget this quite often. It says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and the first commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The whole law and the prophets depend on these two commandments. That last sentence really puts a bow on the Bible. It's like a gift card with a tagline message. Dear reader, in case you don't have time or energy to read a few thousand pages of ancient texts, here's a quick summary for you. Love God, love and forgive others. Oh, and your life is not about you. It seems so simple. How easy it really seems to love everyone. If I direct my positive thoughts, my heart, and my soul toward God, I will see the good in all and love everyone I encounter today and every day. I think, yes, I am capable of that love toward all. I can be like that weird guy at the retreat who plays spiritual rock music and raises his hands, eyes closed, and calls for witnesses. But I can do it my way through caring and understanding and respect. I could love them like a normal person might love others without being so creepily weird. Sure, yeah, yeah, I can. I surely could. Then I step outside of the house and the world attacks and I attack it back. Heck, even inside the house I have attitude some days. So why is it so hard? I do know that when I stay focused on God, When I spend time in the morning with the New Testament or with Christian texts, I am more oriented toward this notion of loving my neighbor than if I get out of bed and charge out the door. Without question, this focus helps me to love others more effectively, but I lose focus, just like Peter, on the water, and I slip. Only it takes me a while to call out, Lord, save me, since I like to sneer and judge for a spell before I recover. And why did Peter sink? It's because he forgets about God. To love one another sounds so easy, but in reality is perhaps the hardest task assigned to a Christian, particularly because of this. It is actually easy to love someone when it's reciprocated, such as in family or in a church full of like-minded people, although there can be plenty of discord in those places too. What makes the golden rule really difficult is when the love is not returned, not reciprocated, but instead you're either hated or you have to shove aside your own feelings of dislike and disdain or hate and you have to remain humble. In fact, today in what is called the post-Christian era, it's less likely that others will hate you for being Christian so much as they will just roll their eyes at you because they have, they've all heard plenty about Christianity. Rather than being persecuted, Christians seem the persecutor due to having such an incredible run of winning for two millennia. So what does this mean? Well, I believe that Christians, American in particular, are feeling the backlash for being too aligned with worldly power. The love that Christians have been pushing since faith made its unholy merger with politics around 1980 has effectively flattened and removed the effervescent bubbles from the message. Love thy neighbor became, love thy Christian neighbor, and to hell with the rest. Besides, everyone loves an underdog, and for some time, Christians were not the underdog that they were supposed to be. In fact, Christians are more likely supposed to be hated, as Jesus mentioned. It's not supposed to be an easy thing. It's actually supposed to be a difficult thing. But without question, the media and politicians have painted this picture and done so successfully, making Christians the enemy as of late. As the religious are removed from the public square and an atheist society takes shape, what comes afterward will be ugly. Those opposed to faith will focus on sins that the faithful have committed and ignore the massive amounts of charity and community work that followers of Jesus do in this world. That is not to say the abuses are excused. No way. There are horrific offenses that deserve full attention and justice, but there is far more good done in this world by those with faith in God than by the few faithful who have eroded trust in religion. Having worked or volunteered at homeless shelters in a couple of states, I can tell you that almost all of the groups that volunteer are religious groups. So everyone ranting online from their computers about saving the poor you just don't see them show up in person. They care enough to tweet, but not enough to enter the fray and mop the floor or do the dishes or unclog a toilet. Most Christians that I know are like me. Human. Well, some are very strange and I'm not sure about their origins, but most appear to be human. But the reality is that Christians suffer the same problems that loving with loving others as non-Christians. But the whole point of the whole doggone faith, is to try to do better. The reason people go to church is to return to the right path. So when non-believers point out that people going to church have a lot of flaws, I have to laugh because that is why they are going. That's the purpose. You'll hear people, those religious people are awful. Well, no kidding. That's literally why they're praying and asking for forgiveness. They are a bunch of sinners. The only difference is that those going inside the church are admitting their limits and faults. So there's a response from G.K. Chesterton about why did he become a Catholic at which he said, well, to get rid of my sins. Those flinging and slinging mud at people of faith for having stains on their life are very close, infinitely close to understanding the why, but sadly missing the point. They call this a self-aware wolf on Reddit. They point out that Christians are not perfect, that they are sinners, to which every Christian who knows about original sin just nods in agreement and goes to church. Since I am not Jesus, that is why I have to try, try harder, and try again, knowing that I will fail, and it still means I need to make an effort every single day to love my neighbor as hard as that is. And that... Love my neighbor needs to have no conditions attached to it. No strings attached. No waiting for reciprocity or validation. I have to love without being loved back. I must forgive all affronts and insults and perceive flaws because I commit errors and sins when I lose vigilance. The minute I forget about God and stop praying constantly and think I'm better than someone else, I'm pulled back into the morass of human nature, into that quicksand. And I have to remember that I am owed nothing and I owe all to God. Otherwise I start to sink and I start to drown. And the idea that I'm owed nothing is very different from how I used to feel, feeling like I am not special or self-hatred is my greatest motivator. Those were also very, that I am not special. But as a Christian, once you have oriented your, your way toward God, it's a completely different way of thinking about the world. When I think of the modern church with the struggles of keeping the faithful in the pews, where people are leaving due to modern siren songs and chasing shiny things on the internet, like new age religions and alternate lifestyles, the church must remember the greatest of all commandments, which the whole depends on, and that's the love your neighbor. And that's the focus. If the if the if the eye is ever taken off the ball of the greatest commandment, the game is over. So There's been a problem or a recipe for this building for a long time, and it's with the fundamentalist version of Christianity being stirred in really thick with politics, and that was the primary voice of Christianity for several decades. There was a sense of anti-intellectualism in a rapidly changing culture where knowledge is expanding at an exponential rate. There was this sense of a distrust of science making it an enemy of religion rather than a complementary pursuit of truth. There was this seizing on a single grave sin of abortion as the only focus of morality, ignoring a lot of other mortal sins that mankind can commit and do commit. And among men that I even know, there is plenty of grave sins happening all the time, and I was a part of that for a very long time as well. Then you add in a sex abuse scandal, sprinkled over a century, so abhorrent that it makes Jerry Sandusky's escapades at Penn State look like a parking ticket. And then finally, for a finishing touch for this recipe, argue over the liturgical format of what the church should be delivering. All of that is not focusing on loving your neighbor, and it's driving people away. So... When they say the church is losing people at a rate of 6 to 1, I think that's why. I'm sure there's much, much more to be said on that than what I know, but that's my feeling. For myself to return, it took a series of events to even want to listen or learn from a church that seemed conjoined to politics. The abuse scandal shattered trust in the priesthood, which is a shame, since so many millions get spiritual direction from priests. The sense of us versus them was apparent to me as a child, as Catholics were obviously mocked in films and in society. And I could see how the faithful circled the wagons in America, going into defensive mode against the secular world, all the while flaws were festering on the inside as much as outside. And it, I realized something that aside from Jesus, the flaws were on the inside of the church and the outside long ago in the same way. Way back in 30 AD, the church was full of flawed people, just as it is now. We can read about what a bunch of knuckleheads the apostles were before the resurrection steeled them and the Holy Spirit invigorated them. You can read St. Augustine and see how flawed he was on practically every page of his confessions. It's actually the flaws that make us real. You can't hide from them. They're not going away, and they never will. So it's not us versus them. It's us versus us because we are them. And them need help as much as us. Okay, grammar is not my strong suit. In the first century, to go against the grain and preach, love thy neighbor would get you crucified or boiled or clubbed. Now it just earns disdain or indifference and a yawn because the focus on the greatest commandment became something of a joke. Today's Catholic and Protestant only has to suffer ennui or boredom instead of a beating, mostly because of our own faults at forgetting what love is. I need a daily reset, getting back to the root solution to realize this, that, you know, to quote Forrest Gump again, it's, I am not a smart man, but I know what love is. So I have to find my geni. As I digress away from the subject of this article, which is about the test of loving my neighbor, I must write a bit more about the causes of why the Christian message, which at first spread like wildfire and took hold of the world for so long, has petered out in recent decades. We all know the story of Jesus and the resurrection. Everyone does. Everyone on earth has heard it in some form. But many give it about the same level of credence that they give to the marvel cinematic universe in fact some people are more excited about the marvel comics because it's not brought to them via annoying religious proselytizing many years ago i recall sitting on a beach on spring break when someone came and asked me if i'd G- chosen jesus as my personal savior and i said no and i asked them to move on now at this point in my life i was agnostic So this experience annoyed me, and I simply wanted these people to leave me alone. Likewise, I spent many years turning away Mormons and family members and and literally anyone who was telling me about religion or God. Why? Why did anyone coming at me in the usual format of Jesus as personal Savior repel me so much? It's because I didn't want to be sold. In America, everyone is selling all the time to the point that you know even the doctor is selling you and the clinic. The saying, if you go to, surgeon, to see a surgeon, he will recommend surgery, is true. There is nowhere you can go in this country without being pitched. I would watch televangelists and my stomach would turn at the spectacle of salesmanship occurring, which was clearly in the name of money and fame rather than God. The beach and door-to-door evangelists with their pamphlets had nothing new to share and I wondered how their pitch worked on anyone. The questions I had were not in need of a true or false answer, but the pitchmen were trying to close the sale as if I were buying a car. So do you want this baby in red or blue? This sales style of evangelization reminded me of salespeople at work who would throw their mothers into traffic if it meant hitting their quota. Salespeople at work would tailor any message to whatever product produced the biggest bonus or commission. In corporate America, there is so much smoke and mirrors that it's difficult not to see snake oil in all products on the market eventually. So for saving my soul, this elevator pitch approach actually confirmed my suspicious of that old Marxist opiate of the masses idea about religion, as if believing in religion meant being a simpleton or a sucker who was only believing because heaven sounded better than hell but who can argue with that? Heaven does sound better than hell. I was lost on four things that the beach and TV evangelists were skipping over. They were skipping right over the main things for me. And I didn't figure out what this was until I listened to Bishop Robert Barron, who spelled it out in a podcast. I couldn't articulate the problem, but he could. And these four points were the problem of why I couldn't get on board with the simple pitch. There was other things blocking it. One, the existence of God. Do I even believe? And I I didn't really decide on that until I came back to the first cause argument that something cannot come from nothing. Second, the Bible. Fundamentalism and literalism had blocked me from considering it as anything but myth. I truly didn't understand how Catholics read it until not that long ago. I had to start over with a non-fundamentalist reading to even begin. Until I understood how to read the Bible properly as a Catholic, the wall was impassable. Anti-intellectualism is the third thing. Catholicism appeared to be against deep thinking and against reason to me on the surface. But this is the picture painted by those who dislike the church that want us to believe that Catholicism is merely an act of ancient ritual and superstition. So I was like Han Solo, doubting hokey religion as simple tricks and nonsense. In reality, the church has a deep intellectual history, but this has been somehow hidden from me and needed to be rediscovered by me. So starting with Augustine, I began to see how unexposed I was to the tradition of intellectual ideas. And from those early church writings, through Thomas Aquinas and the Scholastics all the way to Popes Benedict and Bishop Barron and Francis, I began to realize the vastness of Catholic thought and teaching. All of the deep questions of philosophy, art, and literature have been considered and argued over the last 2,000 years by people wiser than me. I had shut myself out of two millennia of wisdom and thought because of the prior two problems about the existence of God and literal literal Bible reading that I was just shut out, that I couldn't come back. Reading the Catechism of the Catholic Church and the Word on Fire Bible with its commentaries kind of blew my socks off as I found my assumptions to be wrong time and again. And I've learned that there is no shortage of intellectuals among the Dominicans, the Jesuits, and the Franciscans. One other thing I will mention is that in my Wednesday night religion classes, I recall years where I had questionable teaching, where we spent more time talking about things like Magigoria and getting rid of Ouija boards from our houses and other things like that. There were teachers not really teaching catechism. They were teaching some flavor of something. I don't know what it was, but it wasn't helpful. Four, the last one is science. Science. Finally, religion and science are not enemies to me, but they are different avenues to truth. Catholicism is surprisingly pro science, far more than I suspected, and the perception of a conflict between science and religion is mostly invented by those who dislike religion. The idea that the church is anti science is not only wrong, but almost opposite. The Catechism states that science glorifies God in helping us understand His creation. In fact, there's an there's a explanation that we are like the characters in a book and God is like the author of a book. So as characters in the book, we can never explain God. He has authored it all. And as science can reveal things about the book we are living in, that makes sense to me. I can, I can get on board with that. The church's only ask is that science should be done for good purposes rather than evil. So figuring out atomic bombs and tweaking viruses for biological warfare, those are obviously bad things, while curing disease and understanding the universe is good. In other words, the church requests that science avoid advancing the opportunity for sin in the world, and that's not exactly controversial. Science reveals the world, but science cannot destroy or outshine God because All the material things came from God. So the catechism is quite clear on this in faith and science in the catechism itself. It says, though faith is above reason, there can never be any real discrepancy between faith and reason, since the same God who reveals mysteries and infuses faith has bestowed the light of reason on the human mind. God cannot deny himself, nor can truth ever contradict truth. Consequently, methodical research in all branches of knowledge, provided it is carried out in a truly scientific manner and does not override moral laws, can never conflict with the faith, because the things of the world and the things of faith derive from the same God. The humble and persevering investigator of the secrets of nature is being led, as it were, by the hand of God in spite of himself, for it is God, the conserver of all things, who made them what they are. As far as bringing myself back to the faith, I can really say that Bishop Barron made more sense to me than a thousand other voices, and I'm grateful for his podcast and books. And that was the entry point that I needed to come back to the church. Quitting drinking brought me to God, and the Word on Fire ministry brought me back to the church. And alongside Robert Barron, there's another man, Timothy Keller, a Presbyterian, who made equally significant points to me about why that beach evangelism failed to work he said paraphrasing from one of his podcasts that there's a gulf of difference between religious proselytizing and gracious good newsing jesus calls us to do gracious good newsing no one wants the other form you want to evangelize people then do the good newsing humility and grace will win converts because knowing and showing that you are a sinner and not better than anyone else will catch a lot more fish Oh, and treat everyone the same. Keller says, your soul craves something, and Jesus gives it the living water that it needs. And that's the stuff right there. That's the simple stuff. Without any lights or music or hand-waving or virtual retreats or concerts or laying on of hands, there's no psychedelics or TED Talks needed. Gracious good-newsing. Show me by example. I can believe that, and heck, I can even do that because I'm finally past those four bullet points where I'm over the hurdles that I couldn't leap for most of my adult life. And once past those blocks, I could worship God and pray to God. And then I could work toward loving others and expect nothing in return because Jesus has already died for my sins and my salvation is through him. Because I am full of sin and mistakes, I need to love others. That's my duty as a Christian for what Jesus has done for us. In fact, if I cannot love someone... If I'm struggling, I try to think of why. To love my neighbor is not easy, and that's why we have to double our efforts when we struggle to do so. The moment we forget the greatest commandment, we've lost the purpose, and we'll keep losing people because disdain or hate has stolen our gaze. God is love, and each person is a child of God, a person that deserves Christian love. Not lukewarm Christian love, but real love just as Jesus gathered the tax collectors and lepers and all manner of sinners to him. This doesn't mean all sin should be allowed and celebrated, because that is literally what the modern world thinks we need. We need to love the drunkard, not the fact that he's drunk and wants to be drunk. Somehow, people managed to love me through my drinking years, but it was clear that my priorities were out of order. The modern Pharisees are the ones who get lost in the dogma and lose the love. To me, Catholic teachings have the comprehensive cosmology that works and makes sense both intellectually and spiritually. I suspect that any person who enters a church on any Sunday has about the same amount of sins on their conscience as any other person. Many of us have private sins that perhaps we only expose in silence or confession or we fail to see altogether. Every soul in attendance at any given mass carries his or own millstone, his or her own millstone into the pew. Everyone has a cross to bear. Everyone has a vice, a tendency that weighs them down. Accepting sinners is part of the gig, especially when their flaws are not like our own flaws. This goes back to my flawed thoughts about flaws, where I thought, well my flaws are fine, but yours yours are not okay. That doesn't work. Now, clearly not every sin is as bad as murder, but there's a long list of grave matters that the church defines, and I wish you luck discerning God's intention on which one is worse than others. Last I checked, they were all grave matters, and each of us need to be constantly reconfigured and oriented toward Jesus. In reality, all of us sinners have at least one major issue to tackle and resolve through penance and faith in Jesus Christ. Penance must take into account the penitent's personal situation and must seek his spiritual good. It must correspond as far as possible with the gravity and nature of the sins committed. It can consist of prayer, an offering, works of mercy, service of neighbor, voluntary self-denial, sacrifices, and above all, the patient acceptance of the cross we must bear such penances help configure us to Christ who alone expiated our sins once and for all that's from the catechism regarding penance so this doesn't mean sins of the modern age should just be glossed over and we pass laws enshrining and celebrating sin there there's a natural law and going out and getting drunk on purpose is against the rules looking at smut online is against the rules <clears throat> sex and booze both pave the road to nowhere. Drinking to drunkenness, in my experience, is the gateway to many other sins. To pretend otherwise is to ignore the multitude of social and family ills that beer and liquor unleash. Drug use and drunkenness open a floodgate to the garden of earthly delights. I believe that drinking gets too much of a pass in some Catholic circles. This concerns me quite a bit, as there is nearly a celebration of a drinking culture in the church that I don't see in many Protestant circles. And I think drinking is one of the planks in the eyes of Catholics while they admonish others for their sins. I actually suspect much of the sin in the sex abuse scandal was due to drunkenness or had drinking at a root, as a root cause. St. Paul kind of sums up the modern world in one sentence of what we should not be doing. In Romans 13, he says, Let us conduct ourselves properly as in the day, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in promiscuity and licentiousness, not in rivalry and jealousy. So drinking drugs and pointless sex are a no-go, according to St. Paul. And the rivalry and jealousy bit of that, that really reminds me of social media. What gets thrown in the same pot by Paul? What are the two things he talks about? Sex and drunkenness. Both of those are journeys away from God and both are false idols of this world. Both of these pursuits are searches into empty alleyways. They look like a carnival from the outside, but they they turn into prisons. The key to love is not abandoning anyone who goes down those alleys to check out the carnival, but rather to wait for them to wake up and walk out free from the bondage of it. Oh, and the other key is not to follow them down the alleyway and join in on the carnival of orgies and drunkenness for twenty years. <clears throat> like I did. Take a list, take a look uh, at a list of mortal sins once and and you know, email me if you are free of all of them, since you might be the second coming of Jesus, and I'd like to meet you. But as for me, I can tell you that on any Sunday I have or have in the past had one or more of these mortal sins marking me for need of, forgiveness and penitential acts. I can see plenty that I know I've committed, <clears throat> and on some occasions definitely should not have been in the communion line. In fact, I just realized that glutton hap- gluttony happened to me this morning, when after breakfast I sort of had a second breakfast. Thus I've already befouled my day with a mortal sin, and during during Lent I did this when I wrote this first, no less. Um, yet no one's going to shame, shame me for that error because I, I downed those extra Pop-Tarts in private. And Cinnamon Toast Crunch was the main course. Anyway, I'm not the model of piety, and I know quite a few believers who are also like me. They are, they are all like me, really, with human frailties and problems. In reality, even those who have remained faithful throughout the struggles of the church, church commit sins every week, every day i know that modern christians like to draw the battle line in the sand between moral relativism and moral absolutism where we hunker down behind the readout bricked in by the absolute truths of of natural law but i will say the test for christians is the same as it ever was if i can't love my neighbor all of them then i better check myself and try again because the golden rule is kind of important i mean it's just that little detail that jesus said The whole law and the prophets depend on these two commandments. So I fail, and and that's the whole point of why I need to keep going back to Mass and asking for forgiveness. If I fail to love someone that is different from me, or I spurn them because they don't like me, then I didn't really love them in the first place, and I'm at fault. I, I need to keep my own side of the street clean before I worry about someone else's side of the street. I believe the true question for love is not really a question, but a statement of fact from 1 John chapter 2, verse 9. And this, this really is the whole test right here. Whoever says he is in the light, yet hates his brother, is still in the darkness. And whoever loves his brother remains in the light, and there is nothing in him to cause a fall.